first of all, thank you so much for coming on. It's a, it's a, it's an honor, honor to meet you because um, after doing some research on you, I, I realized uh, just how how impressive your background is. So actually, oh, this, thank you. Yeah. So first of all, I guess I'll welcome our listeners to the show. Uh, hello, welcome back. And uh, today we are very happy to have Mr. Lascaris from the Green Party here with us. And uh, Mr. Lascaris has been rated, I believe, as one of the uh, top 50 most influential lawyers uh, here in Canada. So I'm very happy to have, him, have uh, you on. Uh, so how are you, Mr. Lascaris? I'm doing well. How are you, how are you doing in this uh, crazy time we're living through? Ah, I'm, I'm doing well. Um, I guess it's, it's pretty far from my place. So that's one problem we have. Um, right. Right. Yeah, actually, before we jump into the, the more current, current affairs uh, with the Green Party, uh, because I heard some uh, internal troubles with uh, your party recently. Um, so just coming to your background a bit. So you actually st started out as a, a Wall Street lawyer when you first finished university and you switched camps. So what made you switch camp to the other side and decide to uh, almost combat the corporate um, corporate corporations? Uh, well, um, that's it really was not an overnight uh, transition. It happened over a period of years. So uh, when I arrived, uh, you know, at the Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, um, my political orientation was decidedly right wing. I was raised in a conservative family. Uh, in our family, you know, socialism was a dirty word. Communism was an even dirtier word. <laughs> and there were very few people in my extended, large extended family who uh, leaned to the left, almost no one. Uh, and so, um, I, you know, when I struck out on my own, I went off to university. Uh, and then eventually ended up on Wall Street. Um, I began to have a number of experiences where, which were challenging in a very uh, pointed way the narrative that I had grown up with. Uh, so one thing that I noticed on Wall Street was that um, the wealthy and large corporations have access to virtually unlimited uh, legal representation of the highest quality but the vast majority of ordinary citizens can't afford even a decent lawyer, let alone one, you know, who's of the highest caliber. Uh, and so it's and, and, and I began to appreciate as well practicing law on Wall Street, the utter complexity of our legal system and how difficult it would be for somebody who's not represented by a qualified lawyer to navigate the legal system. And if you cannot navigate the legal system, then your rights are purely theoretical. You know, you have to be able to actually enforce your rights for them to have real meaning and to have an impact on your life. Most people can't because they don't have the training to navigate the legal system and they can't afford a lawyer to guide them through it. Uh, so that's something that I noticed right away. Uh, I noticed, too, I had, you know, I grew up in a, a working class family later in life. My parents became a little bit more financially secure. It was a middle class upbringing later, later on. But I really didn't have any contact with the wealthy. Uh, when I moved to started working at Sullivan Cromwell, I had regular interactions with people who were extremely wealthy on Wall Street, senior executives of some of the largest U.S. corporations, and their attitude, uh, you know, their callous disregard, you know, for the well-being of the public and particularly the most vulnerable members of society, really shocked me. Uh, and so th these these two experiences, seeing the inequity, uh, the inequitable distribution of legal resources in our society the callous disregard amongst the wealthy for the uh, most vulnerable members of society uh, caused me to begin to question the underlying assumptions of my upbringing. 
then I went off for a while and I did something that uh, uh, was quite unusual. I was a professional blackjack, blackjack player as part of a, a card counting blackjack team. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were going up against the casino industry. What we were doing was perfectly legal, but the casino industry likes to win. And they really have no tolerance whatsoever for skilled blackjack players. And so I began to see how, you know, large corporations uh, mistreat people who are, you know, acting in a perfectly lawful manner, but uh, who are, have the sophistication to actually extract a profit from a large corporation. And it was ugly what I saw. I saw the way casino industries, major casino corporations were exploiting the most, most vulnerable members of society. I remember one night I was playing blackjack in a casino and there was there was a, a lady uh, sitting at a blackjack table who was had a stroller with her baby in it. And, you know, after a while of watching her, as I was sitting beside her, I couldn't help but notice. It was evident to me that she had a, a gambling addiction and could ill afford to lose her money in a casino. And she was being encouraged by the pit bosses, you know, these uh, suit-wearing uh, representatives of the casino hierarchy to wager even more money. And they, they understood that she was a gambling addict. They saw that she couldn't afford to lose money. They didn't care. Uh, so that had a, a you know a, a a big impact on my thinking, and then finally, into the what really s finally uh, solidified my transition to a leftist was in 2006. I read Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky, and that to me was a revelation. And re I realized, you know, that that not just the narrative of my upbringing, but the larger narratives that dominate our society were false and uh, have been concocted by the wealthiest and most privileged members of our society to perpetuate a profoundly unjust status quo. And that was, you know, that and the financial crisis, which followed soon after, you know, uh, really propelled me into the left. And uh, I've been moving ever leftward since that time. Okay. Uh, as I'm like most people, as I get older, I'm becoming more left wing rather than more right wing. <laughs> Interesting. So, so the book Manufacturing Consent has been coming up recently a lot on the show uh, with my other conversations as well. And so just a, a question to you is, so, um, um, so you said that there's an inequitable distribution of legal resources uh, among the poor and the, uh, the people at the bottom especially. So, um, so from a uh, right-wing perspective, let's say, um, perhaps they would encourage you to do more pro bono work, uh, for example, or to maybe go into politics and uh, still from a writing position. So what made you exclude that option instead of just like switching to the left and moving ever left sense? I don't exclude that option. Uh, you know, in 2016, I retired from uh, my law firm. I was a class actions lawyer, I was making a very good living. I only represented plaintiffs. I never represented corporations as a class actions lawyer. And since then, I've been doing mostly pro bono work. I would say, you know, 75 to 80 percent of the legal work that I do is pro bono. I've put in thousands of hours uh, uh, since then over the last five years representing people who can't afford a lawyer. Um, you know, and uh, I'm sorry, the second part of your question was, uh, oh, politics. Yeah. So when I ran uh, last year to be the leader of the Green Party of Canada, I, I put out, you know, a very comprehensive platform. And a significant part of it was devoted to this very issue of the inequitable distribution of legal resources and the injustices of our legal system. And I was the only candidate who had anything really to say about that, uh, even though there were other lawyers in the race. Uh, so I cannot stress enough how 
the the inequitable distribution of legal resources in our society is undermining democracy. We cannot have a healthy functioning democracy when most people can't afford legal representation in a small proportion of the population and can always afford lawyers of the highest caliber. Uh, if we don't tackle that problem, we will never have a, a healthy functioning democracy. So to me, that's a political priority. Okay. Uh, then before we actually get, get on with Green Party currently, uh, uh, let's talk a bit about your platform. So. Back in 2020, I believe, was last year when you were running for the leader of the Green Party. You said you wanted to, uh, quote, uh, tax the billionaires out of existence. Was that correct? Yes. So uh, can you tell me how, uh, more concretely, how do you plan on taxing the billionaires? Well, first of all, I think we should have a cap on wealth. We should say, you know, what that cap should be is something we should discuss and investigate. What I proposed in my platform was 500 million, which is arguably far too high. Uh, and then, you know, there would be an annual or perhaps a biannual evaluation of each person's net worth. Uh, you know, it's not rocket science to figure that out. Uh, you know, in countries where we where we have estate taxes, uh, there, you know, they have systems put in place for valuing estates, uh, determining their net net value. So the the principles are known. The mechanisms exist to do that. And when we engage in that valuation, you know, anybody who possesses net worth in excess of the cap, that net worth would be taxed at a rate of 100%. Uh, so that's one way. Uh, and I think it's indispensable that we have wealth caps. Also, much higher, uh, much more progressive rates of taxation in the post-World War II period, uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the top marginal tax rate in the United States and Canada was in excess of 90%. 90%. Uh, you know, now it's down around 50%. Um, so I, I would uh, strongly encourage uh, steep increases in the top marginal tax rate. I think we have to stop treating capital gains uh, preferentially from a tax perspective. They should be taxed exactly the same as uh, active employment income. Increase the, 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 the exemption for you know the, the, under under our tax laws the first i don't know what it is 13 14,000 15,000 dollars is exempt from tax we should increase that substantially so we should ensure that people are making enough money to have a, you know a decent life before we start taxing them uh and there are other measures that i would and certainly dealing with tax havens uh you know i wouldn't uh i wouldn't tolerate a, a tax treaties with jurisdictions that uh offer very favorable tax treatment to the wealthy mm -hmm. um so we have to, uh, and we have to do a much better job of allocating enforcement resources in the Canada Revenue Agency towards rooting out tax evasion by the wealthy. So there's a whole range of measures and should take to prevent billionaire status. But to me, at the very top of the list would be a wealth cap, a hard limit on wealth accumulation. Speaking of a wealth cap, so uh, let's, let's take a, a very uh, stereotypical example. Let's say uh, Bill Gates. So Bill yeah. Gates, of, of course, he didn't start off as a billionaire. He he dropped out of Harvard and he started his own co company. And so the the free market argument would be he 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 sort of made his fortune um, because of voluntary transactions between individuals. So do you think it would be unfair to um, to have a wealth cap because he made his money almost um, fairly? He didn't make his money fairly. There's nothing fair about the way Bill Gates made his money. The law has given to people like Bill Gates an effective monopoly over uh, intellectual property, you know, which endures for a very long period of time. There's nothing inherently right about the intellectual property regime that we have. 
these, you know, so for example, let's, let's take the, uh, a perfect example is the vaccines right now. We are, according to the makers of these vaccines, who, by the way, have developed these vaccines with very substantial assistance from governments, an effective monopoly over the intellectual property of the vaccine. And this is preventing us from vaccinating the global population. Uh, you know, we have an effective vaccine apartheid system. Why should we enable them to enjoy this effective monopoly over uh, technologies that have been developed with, uh, particularly those that have been de developed with public assistance? You know, Bill Gates, uh, just as any billionaire, has benefited from public investment. If they don't do it directly, they do it indirectly. So the fact that we have, you know, uh, infrastructure, which enables their business corporations to grow and profit and be stable, the fact that we have uh, an educated population, which is uh, a result of, largely a result of government investment, public investment. All billionaires are benefiting enormously from public investment in one way or another. And there's absolutely no reason why they should be allowed to accumulate that kind of wealth. Bill Gates' wealth does not reflect in any way, shape, or form the value of the contribution that he's made to society. It is grossly disproportionate to the value of the contribution that he himself made. And it doesn't reflect the ways in which he has benefited from public investment. And the last thing I want to say is most billionaires, in fact, I've never met a billionaire who didn't underpay the workforce of their business organization. The most egregious example of this is the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos workers at Amazon are grossly undercompensated. And the reason why that man is able to, you know, jet off to space without blinking an eye at the cost of doing so is largely because his workers aren't paid nearly enough. Yeah. So okay. there's, there's no billionaire in the world, in my opinion, who ever earned billionaire status. That's a myth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Then let's move on to the question of uh, tax rate. You also talk about uh, tax rate a bit. So, uh, so, so according to you, you want to increase the marginal tax rate on, on the rich, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, coming so um, from a chapter from American history, so so uh, FDR uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, he increased the tax rate during the New Deal era for for the rich, uh, I believe to uh, around 74 percent or seventy seven percent, and then it didn't really bring uh, much uh, additional tax revenue. Uh, instead, during the previous Republican, for example, Harding or Coolidge administration. Uh, the tax rate was cut from, I believe, 74% to only 24%, but that allowed more tax revenue to be generated because uh, the rich people started to take out of uh, their uh, their savings from uh, tax-exempt um, security. So uh, do you think that uh, in, your, uh, in the case of Canada right now, if we increase the tax rate, we'll actually generate more tax revenue? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think historically... You know, I, I don't know a lot about the particular example you're giving and why that happened. But historically, I think the evidence is abundantly clear. If you increase tax rates on the wealthy, you generate more tax revenue. That is the general experience historically. And I challenge anyone to, you know, prove otherwise. Uh, you know, so. Uh, but again, and this is just one way in which we, um, we, we should go about increasing the top marginal tax rate. is just one way we should go about redistributing wealth much more equitably in our society. It's just one of the many tools in the toolbox. We should bring to bear all the mechanisms at our disposal to redistribute wealth because mm -hmm. the current distribution of wealth is absolutely obscene. Okay, and, and then um, before we talk about how you're going to spend that wealth, because obviously we, we take it off somewhere, we have to spend it somewhere. Um, so you also talk about you wanted to 
reduce military spending by 50% um, mm -hmm. in your last year's uh, platform. So yep. can you explain uh, uh, the Green Party's and most importantly, your look on C Canadian foreign policy and why do you think you, you should um, decrease the, the military spending? Uh, well, let me be clear. I'm speaking here on my own behalf because yes, the Green yes. Party's I, I, I'm well to the left of the Green Party uh, okay. on on the question of military spending uh, and uh, militarization. So um, there's so many. I mean, I don't even know where to begin to, to answer your question because there's so many reasons to do it. First of all, uh, the military has a gigantic carbon footprint. Uh, so purely on the basis of environmental preservation, we should be demilitarizing. Secondly, we are. Uh, we are diverting public resources when we invest in the military uh, away from absolutely essential investments that must be made, particularly during uh, a, a time of climate emergency, to transition to a sustainable economy. We're also not investing in our education system enough, in our healthcare system enough. You know, the public benefits that flow from investment in things like healthcare and education, uh, you know, infrastructure, civilian infrastructure, are far greater than any benefits. Uh, that may arise from investment in the military. Uh, number three, when you uh, when you buy weapons that are designed to kill, you end up using them eventually. You know, militarization ultimately increases military conflict with all of the terrible things that accompany military conflict, including death, uh, dispossession, uh, destruction of civilian infrastructure, environmental damage. So in order to avoid military conflict, we need to demilitarize. That's one of the best ways to do it. Uh, number four, uh, our militaries are being deployed for unjust purposes. Our militaries are being deployed in effect to perpetuate uh, a global economic order that privileges the few over the needs of the many. Uh, you know, our military is being used effectively for imperialistic purposes and always has been. So if we want to have a society, a global society, which is peaceful, which is just, then we need to uh, deprive you know, the powerful states of the ability to impose their will on less powerful states. Um, you know, I, I, I think those are at least four, you know, reasons top of the mind why we need to demilitarize. And when I advocated for a 50% reduction in military standing, from my perspective, that was just a start. I think eventually we should completely demilitarize. Uh, Canada, the idea that Canada is threatened by any significant foreign power requiring us to spend, you know, in excess of $30 billion a year in our military is nonsense. There's nobody threatening to invade Canada. The Chinese aren't coming. The Russians aren't coming. They have no intention, no, uh, there's no real evidence that they intend to violate Canadian sovereignty. Uh, and even if we had, you know, some legitimate concern about a foreign power, uh, you know, potentially impinging upon Canadian sovereignty, we're not buying the proper military equipment in order to protect our sovereignty. So, you know, these, for example, F-35 fighter jets, they're not what we need. You know, perhaps we need Coast Guard vessels to do a better job of patrolling our territorial waters and ensuring that our, our, our natural resources are not being exploited uh, in ways that our law does not authorize. But the kinds of weapons we're buying, very expensive, very destructive weapons, actually aren't designed to protect our sovereignty, and that's certainly not how they're being used. They're being used to wage unjust wars in distant countries. Okay, and giving, um, so supposedly we have all the, uh, these uh, supposed wealth that we just collected from your policies. 
um, how do you plan on using them? And what do you, what do you see besides the inequity in the legal system? What do you see as the biggest problem that uh, these uh, this amount of wealth can solve? Well, uh, uh, poverty and homelessness should be at the top of the list. There's absolutely no excuse for having tens of thousands of people living in our street. No one should be homeless in this country. We're one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and we have ample capacity to provide to every single member of our society decent housing. Uh, nobody should be living in poverty. Every single human being should have the basic ability to achieve his or her full potential. And that requires unhindered access uh, to good health care, unhindered access to the highest quality educational system, uh, mental health care uh, that requires, uh, you know, uh, economic stability. So uh, for me, the primary usage of the additional revenues that we would raise through increased taxation and decreases of uh, military spending is to uplift the most vulnerable members of our society and the least privileged members of our society. Uh, but also at or near the top of the list would be to transition to a renewable energy economy uh, and to uh, make the investments necessary, for example, by retrofitting buildings that are necessary uh, to decrease dramatically and as rapidly as humanly possible our emissions. So those would be at the top of my list, you know, uh, uh, elimination of poverty and homelessness, transitioning to a sustainable economy. So actually that puts us on a good tangent to our next topic, which is the environment, which I, I think the Green Party makes it clear that they sort of wants to stand for the environment. Um, so not, not about the Green Party, about your perspective. So you said about alleviating uh, homelessness and poverty by, bu uh, by essentially building more housing. Uh, but uh, let's say, so of course in, in Canada, in the States, there are a lot of zoning laws in cities where you can build houses or where you can build houses. So uh, of course, if you're going to build more housing, you are going to be also sort of, um, so, sort of taking away from the natural environment. So how do you plan on balancing the environmental issue with the housing pover poverty issue? Well, I don't, I don't think you would have to, in order to uh, provide housing to the homeless, we're talking about you know, tens of thousands of people in this country. So, you know, well-designed social housing is not going to consume a large amounts of land or uh, natural resources. Um, but, you know, in, in constructing that housing, I would, you know, engage environmental experts uh, in how to best do it so as, so as to minimize the environmental footprint of, uh, of uh, social housing. Um, and so there are a variety of ways to do that. You can have, you know, uh, you, you, for one thing, you can have uh, buildings that have uh, a very high level of energy efficiency, uh, buildings that don't occupy a great deal of space. Uh, you can have, you know, uh, solar panels on roofs, gardens uh, on our roofs, to use a, a variety of known technologies in order to, increase, to, to control the environmental impact of social housing. Um, and uh, I think it can be done in a way that's entirely uh, environmentally responsible. Um, uh, it's just a question of you know, political will and consulting the uh, appropriate experts when we, uh, when we design social housing. Mm -hmm. And so inferring from your answer, I guess uh, from your perspective on the environment, do you think the economy and the environment is a zero sum or negative, uh, negative sum game? Or do you think it's more like a positive sum that humans and environment can develop uh, alongside each other? 
Well, I think investment in the environment increases the quality of life for human beings. Absolutely. Um, you know, cleaner air, for example, if we had uh, less pollutants in our air, uh, we would have a healthier population. It's been shown that millions of people every year are dying as a result of pollution around the world. Millions. Uh, and in our society, uh, not only are there people dying, but there are people who suffer chronic you know, respiratory illnesses because of pollution. So if we uh, had cleaner air, we would have a healthier population. Uh, if we had cleaner water, we would have a healthier population. If we had less uh, extreme weather events, uh, we would have a more uh, stable and productive economy. Uh, so uh, economic growth and environmental preservation go hand in hand. I think they're complementary. I certainly do not uh, think that this is a zero-sum game. Okay. Um, then I, I sort of want your opinion because um, right now we see a lot of politics and rhetorics around that oh, we have to protect the environment and we must keep down the economic growth or uh, the other side would be we have to privilege economic growth uh, and we have to sacrifice the environment. So what is your take on, on, on the discussion between the environmentalists and almost a hardline free market perspective? Well, I do believe we have to learn to live with less. Uh, I think we need to start talking about degrowth or at least uh, um, a, 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 an economic, a form of economic organization in which there is equilibrium rather than growth or degrowth. So, and somebody who's done excellent work in this regard is an environmental uh, economist by the name of Peter Victor at U York University. And I com commend his writings to people uh, who are interested in this subject. Um, but I don't think that the current growth model is sustainable. Uh, certainly one that relies upon uh, ever more extraction and exploitation of natural, finite natural resources for economic growth. That's not sustainable. It ultimately, it will result in collapse. And so we have to talk about, you know, whether growth, at least as we conventionally define it, is a sensible thing for our governments to pursue. And in, in our society, you know, in the economic and the mainstream political discourse, it's just assumed that economic growth is a good thing without any real attention being paid to the immense costs of relentless economic growth. Sorry, I just need to switch places because my, um, my laptop is nearly uh, kaput. No problem. <laughs> Sorry. So go ahead, I, I'm listening to your question. Okay, um, so I was thinking, so, so, um, so Canada, US, Europe, they sort of started the industrialization process very early and at, at a time that human was not uh, very concerned about the environment. So mm. right now we see a lot of uh, third world countries, um, maybe in the global south, in Africa, um, that are trying to develop uh, with their uh, uh, with their economy and uh, undoubtedly they would need to sacrifice some of their environment. So do you think it would be unfair for us to say uh, we need to keep down economic growth or sort of to have a degrowth while they are trying to make uh, ends meet? Uh, it would be unfair if we don't compensate them. So, so for example, we for many years with virtually no success encouraged uh, the Brazilian government to preserve the Amazon rainforest. Uh, it hasn't done that and we're seeing the disastrous consequences of that now. Uh, the Amazon rainforest, large parts of it have now become a carbon emitter, a net carbon emitter rather than a carbon sink. So it's actually exacerbating the climate crisis. Um, and we're seeing this also with uh, the forests in our own country, but that's another issue. So if we want to, you know, uh, uh, ask countries that have contributed relatively little to the climate emergency uh, and that are still in a state of development vis-a-vis -vis the richest countries in the world 
to sacrifice in order to help preserve the livability of our planet, then the wealthy countries need to compensate them adequately. Absolutely. And there should be technology transfers to these countries uh, so that they can develop rapidly their own renewable sources of energy, uh, for example. We haven't done that. We've, uh, we've, we're basically relying upon the developing world to bear a disproportionate burden of a transition to a sustainable global economy uh, without compensating them for the fact that, you know, a handful of extremely wealthy countries are largely responsible for the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, and so my question would be actually, before I ask my next question is actually about uh, the, the transfer of technology. So we talk about vaccines, we talk about uh, how you think that inter intellectual property laws uh, here is a problem. So can you, ex uh, how, can you, um, can you elaborate on your opinion about uh, intellectual properties and why we need to maybe trans transfer them to poorer countries? Uh, well, uh, you know, wealthier countries have the ability to develop, uh, have, have, have a relatively high ability to develop technologies, uh, advanced technologies, um, because of their wealth. And uh, the wealth of the wealthiest countries, to be perfectly blunt about it, has been largely derived over a period of centuries by means of oppression and imperialism. So one of the reasons why, you know, Western European countries in the United States and Canada are so wealthy relative to most countries is because they've abused and exploited peoples from uh, less developed uh, states. Uh, the, you know, the most horrific example of this is perhaps the institution of slavery. Uh, you know, but in any event, um, so what we what we need to do is to take uh, to take cognizance of the fact that the capacity of a handful of privileged states to develop advanced technologies is the result of historical injustices. Uh, and, you know, we can deal with that in a number of ways. We can just put transfer technology to uh, uh, developing states. We can reduce dramatically the period during which under our laws, uh, the developers of advanced technologies enjoy a monopoly over them. So uh, greatly liberalize and relax our patent laws, our copyright laws. Um, uh, we can also, uh, we should also invest uh, in uh, educational systems in the developing world so that uh, so that those the governments of those countries, countries in developing states uh, or, or governments in developing states are better able to educate their populations. And we should also avoid uh, we need to, I think, quite dramatically reform our immigration system, which uh, is effectively causing a global uh, brain drain from developing countries to wealthy countries. So, you know, we, we prioritize in deciding who and who cannot immigrate to this country, uh, the skill level of the worker, you know, and we're taking away from countries that desperately need highly trained workers, their most talented workers and bringing them here and, and leaving the less educated ones, making it extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible for them to emigrate to our country. So this is exacerbating the technological deficit in uh, the developing world. Okay. Um, jumping back to the question of environment. So if, uh, let's say today you became uh, prime minister, um, mm. what would you, uh, what would be your plan forward with the environment and the economy? So what technology, for example, would you think of uh, using and investing in? Well, I would, uh, I would propose that there be massive government investment in 
solar and wind energy. Uh, I think that there should be a massive government investment in retrofitting buildings. Um, the workers, um, we, we, we need to put a, 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 a complete ban on new oil and gas exploration, a complete ban on all new fossil fuels infrastructure. Uh, we need to set a timeline for the phasing out, a strict timeline with penalties associated with it for the phasing out of the fossil fuels industry. And at the same time, we need massive government investment in uh, transitioning uh, the workers from those industries. They cannot left be, be left behind. Not one of them should be left behind. But this is going to require massive government investment to train them to work in uh, the renewable energy sector and also to clean, uh, train them. And, and this doesn't actually require a lot of investment to train them to clean up the mess that's being left by the fossil fuels industry. So in Alberta, uh, you know, for example, there's an or a problem with orphaned wells which uh, by some estimates will cost upwards of $250 million to remediate. Uh, and we should be uh, taxing fossil fuels corporations to fund that cleanup. Uh, and we should put the workers to work now to commence that cleanup on a massive scale. Uh, so those would be my priorities from an environmental perspective. And I, oh, I should also add, we, we should have a, a fixed, sensible carbon budget that is um, uh, you know, uh, comports with the science, with the best available science, and that should be uh, in instituted into, into law so that there would be legally binding carbon budget objectives that we would have to comply on an annual basis. Okay, speaking of wind and solar energies, so wind and solar energies only produce electricity, I think, uh, about 10 or 30% of the time, and sometimes they sort of produce too much and we have no battery technology currently to store them. So what is your take on other energy forms such as nuclear energy? For instance, I think uh, a lot of more, more and more intellectuals are proposing this, such as uh, I think uh, Dr. Steven Pinker from Harvard, he proposed using nuclear energy as a way forward. And also you see France, which is basically uh, exclusive in nuclear energy. So what is your take on nuclear energy and especially the impact of wind and solar energy and their perhaps inefficiency in a country like Canada? So, uh, you know, nuclear energy, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about it because I don't think we found a, a, a safe and effective manner of storing nuclear waste on a long-term basis, as we also saw in Fukushima, when there is, uh, you know, a, a serious nuclear accident, it can have devastating impacts on the local environment, uh, on, on uh, you know, local populations, uh, and uh, devastating economic impacts as well. So, Nuclear energy has associated with it some extraordinary risks, which I don't think we have figured out how to manage yet. So I remain skeptical about nuclear energy. I'm not convinced that that is part of the solution. But I also think that I'm cognizant of the arguments being made by proponents of nuclear energy who are genuinely concerned about the climate crisis. Uh, and I don't think we should reject out of hand what they're saying. We should engage in a, an intelligent discussion about what role, if any, nuclear energy has to play in resolving the climate emergency. But at this point, I do not favor that as a solution, no. I would like to see us develop other technology to solve the problem of intermittency, for example, with the usage of uh, renewable energy, uh, of solar and wind, I should say. Okay, then I think uh, your position on the environment is actually very clear now. And so um, given your current position uh, relative to your party's position, what do you wish you can change in the Green Party's position on the environment? Well, I, I think that the Green Party uh, has not um, called for an absolute ban on the pro uh, on, on new oil and gas development. Uh, 
the Green Party's uh, emission reduction targets, those currently embodied in our policy, are by far uh, superior to those of the other uh, parties with representation in Parliament, but I don't think they go far enough. Um, the Green Party has not, as of yet, advocated for the type of massive investment in retraining uh, fossil fuel workers that will be necessary in order not only to ensure they're not left behind, but in order to generate public support, greater support for the transition to a renewable energy economy. Um, and so, uh, you know, and I think I think uh, the timeline under our policy for the phase out of fossil fuel should be more aggressive. So I think, you know, we, we as a party are doing very well in terms of environmental policy compared to the other political parties, but I think we can and should do better. Okay. Um, and one final question is your, your take on renewable vehicles. Uh, so personally, uh, I think that renewable vehicles are very doable in Quebec, especially because we use mostly hydraulic uh, mm -hmm. uh, power. But uh, for instance, in, in the States or for instance, in Germany, uh, where most of the power are coming from uh, fossil fuel. Uh, and uh, given the fact that production of batteries for electric cars also generate, uh, also produce a lot of pollution. So what is your take on renewables going forward? Uh, you're, you're talking about uh, electric vehicles yeah, in particular? Like, uh, EVs yeah, like right. EVs. Yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I drive a Tesla, so uh, I, you know, if you're going to have a vehicle <laughs> Uh, I think definitely the electric uh, vehicle is the way to go. Uh, but um, I would prefer for us to invest massively in public transportation rather than encourage people to buy electric cars. I would try to discourage them from buying cars altogether, whether they be electric or combustion engine vehicles. Uh, but in order to do that, realistically, we have to dramatically improve our public transportation systems and we should make it free. Public transportation should be available to everybody. It should be of the highest caliber. Again, this is one of the many ways in which we as a society need to engage in massive investment. Um, and if we if we can do that and also the way we design our cities, you know, we've designed our cities in such a way as to make vehicular transportation, uh, if not uh, indispensable to a great many people, uh, desirable and convenient to a great many people, you know, we need to redesign our cities. Uh, so that, too, is going to require a lot of careful thought and public investment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Um, pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Well, thank, yeah, thank, thank you, Henry. You so okay. Take care. Goodbye. You too. Bye bye. Okay.